You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Hang around after the sermon for more information about Mission Ridge Church. Sermon notes for this message or any of our other messages can be found through our website, missionridge.church. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the message. Yeah, so week two of, you've heard it said, Sermon on the Mount, uh, one sermon to rule them all, I think was the official winner of our bad sermon title uh, poll on, on Instagram. But uh, I'm going to pick up, and we got, we've got plenty to cover today, so I'm not going to banter much at the beginning here. We're going to pick right up where Rob left off last week. That's a good place to start, right? Uh, so we're going to pick up at verse 20 remind ourselves of how good that made us feel, right? Uh, where Jesus said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, the Pope and Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, I think was the one that Rob used, uh, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees is what Jesus said, but that was our, our modern day approach, right? We, like, we have to be like, unless your righteousness surpasses the best of the best, then you're not going to enter. Oh, good. The bar's set really low. <laughs> it's high enough that I can actually do limbo under it, because like, I'm really good at limbo. But uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, there's something interesting about this, because when he was talking about it abolishing and fulfilling, right, this is important to us today. And what we're going to talk about, we have to understand what it means to fulfill the law. The scribes and the Pharisees should have been the best at that, because fulfilling the law in their mindset we think of this as like it's a prophecy and then it comes to pass and you fulfill it that way, right? Right. A lot of times that's how we think of this. They have a little bit different uh, mindset for the word fulfill. Um, it's a two-part thing. You begin, the first step is you interpret the law and you have to interpret it correctly, which for his example here, the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, they should be the best at interpreting. This is like, this is their thing. This is like saying like the pastor should probably know what's going on in the Bible. We don't adhere to that necessarily at Mission Ridge. That's a joke. Uh, or we're a joke. I'm not sure which. Um, but the scribes and the Pharisees should be the best, right? That should be the case. The second step though, is to fulfill the law, is that you have to live out your correct interpretation. So you have to have the correct interpretation and then you have to live it out. That's how you fulfill the law. If you don't live it out, then you're still abolishing the law is what they would say. And so Jesus has set this up. He said, this is what it means to fulfill and abolish. Like I I come to fulfill the law. I come to give you the correct interpretation of the laws you already know. And I'm going to show you how to walk that out. Which leads us into today where Jesus gives us some helpful examples of what that looks like. And he gives six, six, I can count. Six examples out of the Old Testament. Six? Yeah. Not Inigo Montoya. Uh, or the other guy. Uh, whatever. Uh, so he gives six, yeah, six, uh, six Old Testament commands. Murder, adultery, divorce, false vows, eye for an eye, and love thy neighbor. It's good smattering. 
a lot of these you probably are familiar. You've probably heard it said. See what we did there? You've probably heard it said something about these, even just in modern day culture, right? And so Jesus is going to go through these and he's going to give, he's going to state the law and he's going to give his interpretation. We're going to see what that looks like. Now, for many of us that grew up in the church and have, are familiar with this passage, are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, have heard sermons about the Sermon on the Mount, we probably have some preconceived notions about what this looks like. A lot of us, I know for me growing up in youth group, some of these have been thrown about and, and it's been thrown down that Jesus is he's taking the law and he's making it more intense. Or maybe he's, he's taking the law and he's giving us a new shiny version of it. And he's like, yeah, no, that was too complex. These guys are idiots. Give them a shiny version. They can focus on that. So as we go through these, as we, as we read through these passages, keep those two questions in mind. Keep these two questions. Next slide here. Does Jesus make the law more intense? It's the first question to ask yourself. And the second one is, does Jesus trade in the law for a new shiny version? kind of keep those in the back of our mind of what is Jesus doing here? Because that's commonly how people interpret this. So let's dive in. Verse 21, we pick it up. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be, a li- will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable or will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar in the temple, offering a gift, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. All right, so you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And then it seems on the surface here, maybe, that Jesus is stepping it up a notch and saying, no, you can't even be angry. Don't even be angry. There's something, there's something a little different here. What we see Jesus doing is he's getting at the heart, at the core, if you will, of the command, do not murder. See, because that, core, that command wasn't actually, it wasn't just about trying to stop people from killing one another. You could treat it like that. You could treat it like this is a, this is a, a way of looking at the laws. It's telling me something that I shouldn't do. And that's good. That's not bad. But Jesus is saying it's a little bit more than that. This command of you shall not murder was always about changing you so that you weren't even angry, saying don't even be angry. In fact, it's a little bit more than that even. It's it's not just saying don't be angry because that would just be making another rule outside of a rule, right? Saying like, well, if we don't want to murder so that we probably shouldn't even get angry so that we don't even get close to it, Right? Jesus is saying, no, instead you should focus on reconciliation. If you go to the altar and your brother has something against you, you've made your, you've made your neighbor mad. You need to go fix that. Before, you, before it gets bad and you have to go to court, you should go fix this. 
And this is, this is a huge this is a huge thing. This is groundbreaking teaching from Jesus because even today, Jewish thought, most, most Jewish thought would tell you they view Torah as a set of guidelines to control your outside self. It's to control what's going on, what your, your outside actions. And they'll look at it and they won't say, no, it's not about changing your heart. And Jesus is instead saying that those commands, this command, you shall not murder is actually about changing your heart, saying that you need to be different inside Yes, it's about not killing people, but it's more than that. Because really, if we can't murder somebody, because there's ramifications to that, and we haven't figured out how to not get caught maybe, right? We still get angry with them maybe, or we still defame them, right? There was a big defamation trial that just happened, right? Kind of, you probably heard something about it, whether you wanted to or not. Thanks, YouTube. Yeah, I definitely want to watch that every day. Stop. No, no, it was recommending it to me. I did not want to watch that ever. <laughs> but, but we'll find some way to defame them, or we'll talk about them on Facebook, the people that we don't like that we're angry about, or we'll just talk about it with our person that we like to talk about things with, and we'll get a little gossipy with them. Be like, did you hear about so-and-so? Jesus is saying that you shall not murder is telling us not to do that. It's trying to change us, to get us away from that. He continues, he goes on with adultery and lust. Uh, and I'm not going to read this whole passage just in the interest of time here, but he says, uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, we've heard this before probably. If you look with lust, then you've already committed adultery and you should probably just cut off, it's better to cut off your hand than to, uh, than to let it cause you to stumble or gouge out your eye than to let it cause you to stumble. Which sounds like Jesus is making the law a little bit more intense. That's what my youth group experience would say. Many of us have had a youth group experience as such, right? I submit a, a secondary consideration for you. Jesus is once again pointing at the core of this commandment. And at the core of this commandment is once again, people. It's not about just stopping you from committing adultery, which is a good thing. Like it's good to not commit adultery, but he's pointing to the core and he's saying it's about people and it's about how you view people. You can't love somebody well if you're objectifying them, which is what lust would be. It would be objectifying somebody. Jesus is once again pointing to a changed heart. He does the same thing with divorce. And that one's, that one's a little bit bigger conversation. He's starting to dip his toe into a larger conversation about how they should interpret the law of divorce. And he's kind of, he, he's not completely going all in and giving his entire thing here. You have to go a little bit later in Matthew to see that. But once again, he's pointing back to the behavior of people. It's once again, he's pointing to how you treat people because in that culture, there, there was different thoughts on what was okay to divorce for. And Jesus says, and he lays down a pretty strict law on that, a pretty strict interpretation. But really it points back to how are you treating your spouse? Then, he, then we get to this false oaths or swearing. Again, I have said, 
This is Matthew 33. Again, you have heard it said to those, that are, uh, those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And then he gives some crazy examples, you know, like uh, take an oath by heaven or by earth for it's his footstool or, Jer- or Jerusalem. You shouldn't swear on any of these things is basically what he's saying. And don't take an oath on your head because you can't even count the hairs. I'm getting close to being able to. <laughs> Closer every day. All right. Is that closer to God? I'm not sure. Because God can count my hairs. So if I, never mind. <sighs> but he ends this by saying, you've heard it said you, you, you shouldn't, you know, you shall not swear, swear falsely. But he ends with this. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is the one where I think he, it seems like he's just taking away the obnoxiously complex. Like there's this whole rule system and he's just making it simple. Like, this dunderhead Logan can't figure this out. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? But, it, but it's more than that. See, because in, in the cultural context, they had they'd created, the Pharisees had created this convoluted system of like levels, like, well, I swear on Jerusalem. And, and then they like, well, I want to break that vow. I made a vow on Jerusalem. So I need a, I'm going to make another vow that contradicts it. And I'm going to make a vow on the temple because the temple's more important. It'd be like me saying, I swear on my mom's chocolate chip cookies. And then I want to break my word. And so I come, I swear on my mom's dobus tort. That outranks that for sure. Convoluted. And what Jesus is bringing it back to, he's pointing back to the center of this commandment. He's saying, no, no, no. The purpose of this oath thing is that you're supposed to be treating people with honesty you're supposed to be looking at them and, and treating them in an upright manner. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you do that, you don't even need to make these oaths. If you're treating people well, you don't need, you don't need this convoluted system of that. It's pointing back to people again. Are we seeing the pattern? Retaliation's the next one. An eye for an eye. And we've all heard this, right? And we, as Americans... It is our red-blooded American right to love this commandment, right? I don't know if there's one that we love more because that means that if you hit me, I can hit you. Fantastic, right? We use it as a, as a kind of a prescribed, like if you hit me, then I should hit you for the same amount, right? Right, or, or maybe more, right? We, we flip it around and at least as much. <sighs> Jesus says this, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. See, the original law with this was about keeping retribution from getting out of hand. An eye for an eye is not saying you have to come back and take that person's eye. I lose, somebody takes my eye and I come back and pluck out theirs. It's not saying I have to. It's saying that I don't get to take both of theirs. It's once again about keeping power in check. So that the person in power can't come in and be like, you wronged me and I'm going to just destroy you. It's the opposite of how we end up treating it a lot of times. 
It's a defensive position, not an offensive position. That's the intent of this law. It's to stop things like the story of Samson from happening. And the best outcome is not necessarily taking that person's eye. Because we all know the rest of the, like, the common phrase of an eye for an eye till the whole world's blind, right? Which doesn't make sense that an eye for an eye, like it doesn't make, like logically it doesn't make sense that we would treat it as an offensive, like I, I have to do this. And yet we do so often. And Jesus is pointing back to the core of this and saying there's a better way. And he provides some options here. Now, context, we'll use the, uh, the cheek one is my, maybe my favorite. Uh, so in that time period, you had two hands. Look at your two hands. Your left hand was only used for bathroom duties. You didn't do anything else with that left hand. You interacted with people with your right hand only. Now, he's very specific about if somebody strikes your right cheek, right cheek. Now imagine with me here, or turn to your neighbor. Don't turn to your neighbor. <laughs> Don't actually slap your neighbor. But if you are going to slap somebody standing in front of you on their right cheek with your right hand, how's that going to work? I have to backhand them. Right? That would be demeaning. It would be treating them like a slave, a lower class. And what does Jesus say to do? He says to turn the other cheek. He doesn't say retaliate. He says to turn the other cheek, which is a lot of times people are like, well, yeah, he's just saying to like roll over and be a wuss. No, because if I turn my left cheek and you're facing me, you can't hit my right cheek with a backhanded slap. You have to treat me like an equal. You have to see my humanity, see my dignity if you're going to hit me again. And what that does is it means that everybody else who just witnessed this I've just called out the fact that you have wronged me in that way. You're calling out the aggressor and you're saying that wasn't right. You're not retaliating, but you're still calling it out by just turning the other cheek. And what that does is it gives the aggressor, it gives that person who has wronged you, it gives them an opportunity to choose a different path. And that's what Jesus is being a proponent of. And he does this with the two other examples too. Your, uh, the, tunic, the tunic and cloak is what it says. Your tunic is your outer garment and your cloak is your inner garment. And so if you're suing somebody for their outer garment, it means that they have nothing left to take. You're taking the clothes off their back. And what Jesus says is, give them your, in, give them your underwear too. Like they're suing you in a place where you shouldn't, like they really shouldn't. There's no need. They've gone too far. And you're calling this out. You're pointing out the problem. For everyone to see uh, the one mile, two mile Roman soldiers could, uh, could in just tell you, they could just walk up and be like, you carry my pack for one mile. They could only go one mile. They could only force you to go one mile, but they could force you to go one mile with their pack. As soon as you go past that mile marker, it creates an awkward situation because now they can get in trouble for that. And you're pointing out like it was wrong of you to do this. It's wrong of you to force me to do this. 
It's not retaliation, but it is calling out the wrongness. It's calling out the injustice. And Jesus is giving a separate path here. He's calling us back to that original, like eye for an eye is meant to keep us from retaliating and letting that retribution get out of control. And he's saying there's a better way with this. And it's how you treat people once again. Last but not least, we have this neighbor enemy. One that he uses. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because that's easy to do, right? Mm-hmm. Sounds like he's upping the ante. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, which I think is the best pun that Jesus ever made. I'll let you consider that. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you even the tax, uh, do not even the tax collectors do the same? Those guys are the worst. Like even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do that? Oh, them's fighting words to a Pharisee. You're no better than a Gentile? Oof. Jesus is getting spicy. And then he finishes with this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. All right, two things on this passage. The first one, you've heard it said, you shall love your enemy and hate your, or or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You can't find that in the Bible. You can find love your neighbor. That's that's easy to find in Leviticus 19.18. Says you uh, don't take a, uh, do no vengeance, no grudge, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's how that one finishes. Not this hate your enemy thing. And for years, people, they couldn't figure out where this came from. Then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls with the Essenes. And the Essenes had this kind of proverbial philosophy that they had developed from this. And I think they probably got it from Leviticus 19, 18. It says you shouldn't bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. And so they're like, well, we only have to love our neighbor. That must be our own people and we can hate our enemies then. I think that's probably where they got it. And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's wrong. And he's pointing it back to the heart once again, because you're supposed to love your neighbor. And if you're not loving that person, then you probably need to figure out why they're not your neighbor, right? He's pointing back to, he wants a heart change here. All of these are heart-oriented as opposed to performance-oriented. There's a performance aspect, sure, but they're heart-oriented. But then he finishes with this, but you got to be perfect, like your father is perfect, which kind of derails the entire sermon, right? You're like, Logan, how did you just, you drove this into a wall. (laughs) Everything I've said has been wrong, apparently. we got to be perfect. Okay, maybe not. What the heck is going on with this? Is roughly right heresy. I got excited. Like, oh, we can throw roughly right out. We can get rid of that. My inner perfectionist loves this verse, kind of. Let's read the Amplified Bible. Uh, let's read their translation of this because I think that they nail this right on the head. So let's pull that up. It says uh, in Matthew 5:48 in the Amplified translation, it says, you therefore will be perfect. And then they add this little quotations of like where they're expanding 
growing into spiritual maturity, both in mind and character, actively integrating godly values into your daily life. Does that not sound like fulfilling the law? Having the correct thing, knowing the thing and doing the thing. Does that not sound like that as your heavenly father is perfect? Okay, now how did they get there? Because I mean, anybody and their dog could just like throw some parentheses and be like, this is what it says. The Greek word for perfect that they use here is teleos. And we wrestled with this hard this week. So I'm confident that we are not completely wrong. <laughs> the Greek word is teleos. Now, Rob's talked about teleos before. It sounds like telescope, right? It's like something is growing. It's maturing. The, the definition uh, could be complete or perfect or mature, fully aged, fully grown, right? Something that has come to completion. You would use teleos to describe. <clears throat> it says, and it kind of says, you shall be teleos as he is Telios, you shall be complete. You shall become complete as he is complete. Speaks to it being a process. There's change involved. Now, a little bit more than that, this, this verse here, this quote that Jesus uses, because I think it's a quote, he's, he's making a reference back. You remember uh, where we talked about you'll love your neighbor as yourself? Leviticus 19 the very beginning of that passage, like 17 verses earlier, it says this, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. You shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. That sounds pretty similar to you shall be perfect as your father is perfect. It's real close, but it's not quite, it's not quite perfect <laughs> because this word holy in the Greek is, uh, what did I get in my notes? Hagios. It's hagios or hagion or something like that. It's all Greek to me, but it means most holy thing a saint. And it only gets used for the, the word kadosh, kadosh in Hebrew. So it's not quite the same but it's real close. So Jesus kind of says this, he kind of quotes this, which everyone, remember how the Sermon on the Mount is similar to the sermon where Moses comes down from Sinai. People probably would be making some connections or at least we're supposed to be with Matthew recording this. It's pretty on the nose. Okay, so Jesus is, is, is calling us our attention to this, but then he substitutes this word. Well, where does teleos get used? in the Septuagint, in the Hebrew to Greek. Where would we see that show up? We'd, sh we'd see it show up, not the first place, but a, I think maybe the best place to see it, Genesis 17. Abraham was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abraham, Abram. He's not Abraham at this point. And he said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. This word blameless. In the Septuagint, in the Greek, they use the word teleos for the Hebrew word. They're blameless. Be blameless that I may make covenant between you and me and, and may multiply you greatly. Jesus is getting a little two for one reference here. 
He's calling them back to that Sinai, Sinai reference saying, you'll become, you must love the Lord, love, uh, you shall be holy for I am the Lord, your God am holy. And he's also calling them back to their covenant in this kind of two for one reference here. And it's this, and it, it makes, that's how we end up with this. You're being perfected and you're becoming like God and you, cause it's, you shall be holy. It's this process of you, you work on these things and you shall be holy. You're becoming like God. Jesus is pointing in this whole section. All of this is coming to a head with, you're going to work on this and you're going to become like God in your heart. You're going to understand the intent of the law and you're going to walk that out. Which brings us to our implication. Jesus isn't putting up extra rules to make you follow the main rules better. He seeks to change your heart to look like God's heart. That's what he's doing in this whole passage, this whole section. He's not just putting up extra, law, extra laws. It's not uh, Shondaya's birthday yesterday where they were bowling. And some of the, you know, you have the bumpers on the bowling alley, right? Jesus isn't just putting up bumpers for you. Saying like, nope, we're going to just, we're not even going to lust so we can stay away from adultery. Like the goal is to stay away from adultery, so we're not even going to lust. Like he's not just putting up bumpers like that. He's saying, no, I'm going to improve your aim so that you can actually make it down the, down the lane without needing the bumpers. I want to change your heart. I want to improve your direction. It's interesting. If you're a, a skier or a snowboarder, I guess they probably do this, uh, and you're trying to make it through a, a section that has trees, you know how they can zip through those and not kill themselves? They don't focus on the trees. They don't focus on not hitting trees. If you focus on not hitting trees, you will die. <laughs> or at least be one with the tree. You focus on finding the path that you're supposed to take. You see this with new drivers also. Like they focus so hard on staying in the lane, like they're focused on the outside lines. And so they keep like bouncing back and forth, right? And they're all over the place. Or maybe, maybe if you're not a new driver and you still do this, and you, <laughs> all right, we're gonna improve things. So what you do when you're going around a curve or when you're driving is you don't look at the lines you look at the center where you want to go off in the distance. You focus on your goal and you don't worry about the thing that you're not supposed to be hitting. Same, same concept as the trees. It also works in a car. That's how you avoid trees with a car. Uh, focus on not hitting the, Never mind. Don't focus on not hitting the tree. Focus on finding the path around the tree. I don't know, something like that. Bringing it back in a little more serious understanding that the heart of do not murder means that we're focusing instead on settling our squabbles before they get out of hand. Because if you do that, then you never have to worry about, well, maybe I'll go too far and kill him. <laughs> if you focus on settling the squabble early, then you don't have to worry about being angry with them. Works on all of these. If you develop a heart that sees people worth, with, you see people of, for their worth and their dignity, suddenly you're not objectifying them 
because you're viewing them with worth and dignity as God created them. And you're not objectifying them, which means you're not lusting and which means you're probably avoiding adultery, which I think is, we all agreed was a good thing. Jesus is trying to change your heart. If you develop a heart that loves and values your spouse, then divorce probably less of an issue. If you develop a heart that is honest with people and focus, and you focus on being honest with people and telling the truth and dealing with them in an upright, authentic manner, then you don't have to worry about making promises and whether your oath was the right oath because people just know, oh yeah, Jen just deals with me honestly. If you develop a heart that seeks restoration and mercy, then you don't have to worry about taking too much retribution. You don't have to control yourself on eye for an eye because you're focused on restoration and mercy, which I think Jesus mentioned something about mercy in the Beatitudes that we read last week. If I remember correctly, maybe for sure, maybe something about the peacemaker applying there also. I don't know. It might all be connected. These teachings are trying to change your heart. They're not about just putting up rules. They're not about putting up boundaries and saying, don't do this. Don't do this. It's about trying to change your heart so that you look more like God. That begins, that begins with submitting to Jesus and saying, yeah, no, I'm going to take on these teachings that he's giving me. I'm going to take on this interpretation. They would call it your yoke, his yoke. I'm going to take on Jesus's yoke. I'm going to say, I agree with his interpretations of this. I like that. This is right. That's correct. And now I'm going to walk those out to fulfill the law with him. It begins by submitting to him as Lord and Savior. So today, as we move into communion, I want to invite you to wrestle with this question of, of how do you think that Jesus wants to change your heart? If Jesus, if you're sitting there and Jesus is given a one-on-one sermon to you, where is this resonating? Where is Jesus trying to change your heart today and say, no, I want to focus on this. I want to bring you, I want to bring you onto the path here so that you can quit hitting the trees. Where does Jesus want to change your heart? Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a church focused on relational discipleship and located in Missoula, Montana. If you are in the Missoula area, we would love to have you come and join us for worship. Service times, location, and all kinds of other fun stuff can be found on our website, missionridge.church. You can connect with Mission Ridge Church through Facebook or Instagram, so give us a like or follow. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for tuning in.